But you better buckle up because God's got a word for you tonight that I believe that if you can begin to allow it to to transmit and permeate into your life, it's going to help you primarily in your relational success. Anybody in a relationship tonight? I see you out there, yeah. Some, like some girl just knows, like, you better, you better raise your hand, right? And so, um, but here's the reality. We're all in a relationship tonight. We are people. We are relational people. So we're all in a relationship. So what God is going to speak to you through the mouthpiece of James is going to be so relevant to where you're at and what you are called to do and what you are uh, built to do as a person. So it's No Shave November. Any participants? No Shave November? I see you out there. Yeah. Um, no Shave November uh, reminds me of the first time I, I shaved. Um, I was about five, and I didn't have much hair on my face at that time, so I had hair on my legs. And uh, I was at my grandmother's house, uh, my grandmama on my daddy's side, and, and she had this single, like, one-blade Bic razor, you know what I'm talking about, the real cheap ones. Well, she had left it out on the side of her bathtub, and I was in there taking a bath, and I had seen my mama shave her legs, and I had kind of seen some of that before, and, and so I thought, well, I, I, should try, I should try this out. And so I grabbed the razor blade. I'm in there probably playing with boats and bubbles and all that stuff, and then I'm like, oh, a razor blade. I should shave my legs. Bad idea. And I didn't know how to use a razor at the time, so I literally got the razor, put as much pressure as I could on my shin bone. So I'm like, I saw this in Saw, stop, right? And then, yeah, I pulled up, and just, man, gouged my leg. Ah, you know, grandmother thought I was dying in there. And, and man, that, that razor blade, it, literally the razor blade can either gouge you or, or really what I've come to find out is that a razor can be a gift for you as well. And so I decided to grow some hair on my face later on in life and pick the razor back up. And so now I shave my face, and I do that because my wife likes my face shaven because it feels good upon her face. And so the razor that once gouged my leg and caused bleeding now is a gift and really promotes relational intimacy between me and my bride. I think conflict is a lot like a razor blade. The conflict is something that we all experience, that we all have had some sort of dealings with in our life. And conflict, it can be something that, is, that can gouge your relationships and cause bleeding and cause damage. But conflict, I want to suggest to you tonight, can be a gift. And i tell you the story of me cutting my leg to pieces because I want you to know that there is something, there is something very, very serious about conflict that we need to be careful with. That like a razor, it can gouge you, but also like a razor, it can be a gift that brings you closer to one another. And so, guys, conflict is so important for us to learn how to deal with. And, guys, if you don't learn how to deal with conflict, it will gouge your relationships to pieces. And it's so significant if you come here and you're claiming to follow Jesus Christ because the way that we do relationships, you could write this down, the way that we do relationships is our greatest proof for our relationship with God. The way that we do relationships is our greatest proof for our relationship with God. The way we like to say it around here at Abundant is that we want to be a living proof of a loving God to a watching world. That people care more about what they can see than what you can say. Jesus said that if you are a follower of mine, you will be known by the way that you love one another. 
He said, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you sacrificially, given my life for you, so you must love one another. And he says that you will show the world that you're my disciples. And so the way that we handle conflict is critical if we claim to follow Jesus because it will show the world who we are truly following. In James, man, he knew a lot about conflict. James grew up in the Middle East. He grew up in Jerusalem in the outside area. And, and man, that place has always had conflict. And even in the day and age in which James lived there, the Roman Empire was ruling them. They were basically enslaved to the Romans. And, and they were in conflict and turmoil and just as, you know, just as, uh, as true today that they're still in conflict there. That James, he knew a lot about conflict. He had seen his brother Jesus uh, deal with all kinds of conflict. In fact, he had seen his big brother Jesus die on a Roman's cross because they had animosity towards him and because of this conflict. In fact, the first conflict that took place in the first church, James was right in the middle of. It's in Acts chapter 15, I do believe. It's called the Jerusalem Council, where the church came together and they made some critical decisions that affect even our faith today. And they resolved conflict and they carried out conflict well. We called this message the gift of conflict. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's a gift. Turn to your second choice now and say, like you mean it, it's a gift. <laughs> The gift of conflict. But before we get there, what's the source of conflict? I think there's lots of responses to conflict, but what's the source? And James, he's going to hone in on, on the source. He's going to say that there's one common source for all conflict. And if you have come here tonight and you are claiming to follow Jesus, but even if you're not claiming to follow Jesus, you've got to do something with conflict. And so if you're here tonight, James would say that there's one common source of conflict. And if you could own this ideal from James, when it comes to conflict, it could radically change the relational success or detriment of your life for your life. And so if you're going to see conflict as a gift, write this down, point number one tonight. You're going to have to know that there is a part for you to own. You've got a part to own. James chapter 4, verse 1 is where we're at tonight. I'll give you a minute just to get there. James chapter 4, verse 1. While you're turning there, I want to tell you that we are also online on the YouVersion Bible app. You can find our notes and follow along there. James chapter 4, verse 1, he poses this question. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Don't you love that the Bible's going to talk about strife and, and talk about real life issues? Don't you love it that James is not sitting in some ivory tower reading some old literature and just kind of conjuring up some cute ideas, but he's boots on the ground. He is pastoring a church. He's rubbing shoulders with real people with real problems who have come to his church and they have conflict. And I know that there's a lot of people here tonight that you have conflict in your life. If you're not in a conflict right now, you're more than likely going to be in a conflict. The conflict is so much a part of the human experience. And maybe some of you have come here tonight and you have a, had a terrible experience with conflict. And you don't know how to navigate this, this, these waters of conflict. But James is going to say, hey, there's conflict. I, I, I know that, that real people have real conflict, but where does it come from? And here's what he says. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war within your members? That James, what he's saying is that, man, you've got a part to own. That all your conflict comes from something that's, listen, inside of you. Not something inside of them. Not a problem with your mama. Not a problem with your roommate. Not a problem with your boyfriend. Not a problem with your boss. James would say that the source of conflict is you. He says that it comes from the desire for pleasure. That word pleasure in the Greek is the word hedon, in which we get our word hedonist. 
means a pursuer of pleasure. That James is saying at the end of the day, we pursue our own pleasure at all costs. We call it narcissism in our society. That we are all narcissistic in nature. We're self-lovers. And so when we don't get our way, conflict happens. And James is saying, man, you've got to own this. That if you could own this one thing, that you are part of the problem and apply it to your life immediately, it would begin to affect your relationships tonight. That you've got a part to own. Now, this is hard, isn't it? Because we don't like to think that we're the issue, right? Like we said earlier in this series, we like to Taylor Swift our sin away, right? Mm, look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. Look, look what you, whatever, you know what I'm saying? And, and so we like to say, the problem's not me, it's you, right? And so we have a hard time owning it, but James is saying if you want to get to liberty in your conflict and you want to see conflict as a gift and not as a gouge in your relationships, you've got to own your part that the problem is not them, it's you. That so often the common denominator in the dysfunction of your relational history is you. So you come in, you're like, all men are morons. I seem to be like a moron magnet. It's like, well, well, you're the common denominator here, sister. <laughs> Women are crazy because you make them crazy, bro. <laughs> you, you're the common denominator in this wake of dysfunctional relationships. It's not them. It may be you. You've got a part to own. And James, man, he's speaking, he's speaking truth in love tonight. Remember, James, he's going to get harsh tonight. He's going he's to drop the hammer, but he's speaking it in love. And know this, that true love always speaks the truth in love. That it's not loving if there's not truth involved. And so we've come here not claiming to have it all together, but we're coming to the source. We're coming to the unchangeable word of God, the immutable nature of character. I mean, the character of God, the immutable nature of God, that he is unchanging and we're saying, God, I need to change. Verse 2, James, he goes on and says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. That he's saying the reason why we have so much conflict is because at the end of the day, there's a lot of times we just want something that we're not getting. Um, my wife, she, she grew up playing with Barbie dolls, and so we inherited those. Um, we just got them out of her parents' attic just um, a few months ago, and so my, my two daughters, I have three girls, and I love being a dad, but, but like they're just in Barbie heaven right now, okay? And so it's awesome. They got Barbie dolls. They got the cars, the accessories. They inherited all these things, and so it's incredible. But so much of being a dad is just like kind of, kind of conflict management, you know? Hey, don't do that. Put that down. You shouldn't apologize. You know, here's, you know we spank. Don't tell nobody, but we spank our kids because they, you know, they stomped on feet and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, there's this one Barbie doll, and I don't know. We have like 30 Barbie dolls, but there's this one called Skipper, and and for some reason, the girls, they love Skipper. Both of them want Skipper. And so uh, often, there's a conflict over Skipper. And so I run in there, and I'm refereeing amongst the girls. I'm like, okay, who had Skipper first? And I did. No, I did. No, I did. And why did you bite her? I'm just kidding. They're out of that phase, but they were in that phase, you know, and all this stuff. So I'm like resolving the conflict. And the bottom line of the reason why they're having conflict is because they have something that I want. And James is saying that you lust and you do not have. That oftentimes the source of our conflict is that we're not getting what we want. And he goes on, he says, so we kill. He says this, he says, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. Now James isn't at like death row. He's not talking to inmates, serial murders, and that sort of thing. He's talking to people like you and me. 
And he's saying that the principle is true. And here's the principle that you have a tendency, I have a tendency to hurt the people that I love the most. You have a tendency to hurt the people that you love the most for our desire to get something from them so that we feel prouder, so that we feel happier, so that we feel more fulfilled. Some of you grew up in a home like this, like you had the overzealous baseball dad. And he was going to make you an MLB star. And so he carried you to all these lessons, and man, he was hard on you. And why can't you work harder? And, and why you need to bat practice BP until your hands bleed? Dad, I'm seven. Can I, like, can I play with Legos? No. We're watching the World Series. All right, you know, and so like he just, he was so hard on you. And, and it created this conflict in your home because secretly deep down inside, your dad was trying to vicariously live through you. Like he wanted you to make the bigs, not so that you would make the bigs, but so that he would have a son in the bigs so that when he went to the barbershop, he'd be like, yeah, Bubba, he'd been, he been killing it, you know, so he could brag like LeVar Ball, you know, like that's his mentality, right? And, and so you had that, or maybe some of you ladies, you came in here and you have like the, the beauty queen mom. Man, she was always on you. Hey, hey why are you eating that? Or, or why, don't you wear, why don't you wear this? Hey, we should go shopping. Oh, tell me about your love life. And she was always intersecting into your life, always creating some sort of conflict. So by the time you were 16, you're like, Mom, I'm done. And she was trying to live her life through you or trying to get you to present yourself in such a way so that she felt better about herself. And James is saying that so much conflict comes from this. And we have the tendency to destroy those most dear to us because we want them to make us feel better about ourselves. So you got to own your part, man. James is saying, you've got to own your part. I mean, could you imagine what it would look like if, if we begin to own the reality that we are a part of the problem? Like how this would begin to influence our relationships? Because, guys, again, conflict is going to happen. Conflict wears many costumes. It may be conflict with a, a boyfriend. It may be conflict with a girlfriend, with a relationship, um, with a roommate. It may be a conflict with a boss. It may be a conflict with someone in your family. And it's how we deal with conflict that will define our relational success. Conflict is so important. Some of you here, you're like, not me. Me and my man, we got chemistry. <laughs> He's got good teeth, abs. And a bank account, you know, and we're just so in love. Conflict, listen, conflict, not chemistry, will bring intimacy. Intimacy into me see. The way you know somebody is not whether or not you have chemistry. The way you know somebody is going through conflict with them because conflict reveals who they really are. Not that you should try to conjure up conflict. Conflict will happen naturally. But watch in the midst of conflict. I am not impressed by a relationship that has chemistry. I'm impressed by a relationship that is marked by healthy conflict and has intimacy. Josiah says this, and I love this, and it's right. He, he says the number one success, my bad. He says the number one success and determining factor to your future Six, excuse me, the number one determining factor for your future success in marriage is your ability to resolve conflict. If you want to have a happy marriage, if you want to have a successful marriage, you need to learn how to resolve conflict. James, he goes on to say this, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. 
that James, what he's trying to say is that our prayerlessness is often an indicator or a sign that we're trying to run things in our own strength, that, that we're trying to run things under our own control, that we're saying, God, I don't need you in my life. I'm going to deal with this conflict on my own. But James is saying that, that you've missed it, that you need to spend more time Instead of preparing your argument to go handle that conflict, you need to spend more time on your knees asking God to change their heart or maybe asking God to search your heart and make sure you are in the right. Like, did it ever dawn on you before you fired that email to your boss or your coworker? Did it ever dawn on you before you stormed into your roommate's room? Did it ever dawn on you before you hit send on that text message to him or to her? Did it ever dawn on you before you went into action to stop, hit your knees, and begin to pray, oh, God, I can't change their heart, but you can. Oh, God, I can't change my own heart, but you can. And James is saying you don't have peace in your relationships because you ain't even asked. And then he goes on, he says, but some of you have asked, but you've asked amiss. He said you don't receive when you pray because you're asking with unrealistic expectations. That you're, you're asking God to bless your relationship so that you feel better about you. And so you're like, Lord, if you could just help her shut up and just sit there and be pretty. So that when my boys see us, they're like, dang, how'd he pull her? And, and, he, and they don't have to see all the crazy. So God, you just change her heart so she ain't so crazy. Or, or God, if, God, if you could just help him to not wear a sleeveless shirt, because that's just embarrassing. Come on, around my family, I'm country club folk, but he's so nice. But God, if you just help him, be, and you want him to look a certain way, act a certain way that's not really him so that people will look at you and go, oh, they're just the perfect couple. And so you're asking God, oh, change his heart, but you really don't even want his heart. You just want him to change to make you look good. And God ain't going to give you that. That's what James is saying. And so we're moving on. Conflict is a gift. And if you're going to see conflict is a gift, man, you've got to own your part, but also you've got a perspective to change. Point number two, you've got a perspective to change. James, he turns up the heat here and he says, adulterers and adulteresses. He says, you're shagging the devil. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you, do you think that the scripture says in vain that the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? That James, he's comparing two approaches to conflict and ultimately two approaches to life. That he says that, that you can't claim to be on God's team but run the plays of the world's team. You know what I'm saying? Like that first, that, that, that time when Chelsea and I were playing flag football, we were just newly married and we decided to do co-ed flag football. And I had just like recently ended my football career, which is not really the best environment to step from full contact football into flag football, especially co-ed flag football. I'm like, I'm about to kill somebody. You know, and they're like, there's ladies out here, bro. You just need to calm down, you know. And so Chelsea's like, it was her turn to go in and play. And Chelsea didn't grow up playing football, obviously. She's more of a dancer, and that's well seen if you know my wife. Anyway, so I'm like, hey, babe, why don't you go ahead and get in there? We were on defense. Our team was on defense, and so she ran out there. I'm like, yeah, go out there, guard that receiver right there. So she runs out there, <laughs> you know, whatever, and so, and then she, uh, she gets out there like this. Some of you ladies are like, yeah, cool, she's ready, you know, but guys are like, no, that's, that's a receiver stance, not a DB stance, but we were on defense, and so she gets in a receiver stance on defense. They hike the ball. She runs around. Hey, I'm open. She was wearing our jersey. We were on defense, but she was running the plays of the other team. And some of y'all would say, uh, Chad, um, 
it's obvious when you're wearing this team's jersey that you don't play for that team. That's obvious. Why isn't it just as obvious that when you claim to be a Christ follower, you don't run the world's plays? Why isn't it just as obvious if you're claiming that Jesus Christ died for you, he's your Lord and Savior, that you don't run the world's plays, especially when it comes to conflict? That so often we want to take conflict into our hands, underneath our control, but conflict is your greatest opportunity to show the world who's in control of your life. Conflict, it's a gift, but we've got to change our perspective. Now, when it comes to conflict, I think that we typically fall into one of two categories, and Jesus is going to insert a third category. i got a graph that's going to pop up behind me, and I think most of the time we slip into uh, being a peace faker or a peace breaker. So a peace faker, this is the person that just, they fake peace. And so you, um, you kind of stuff things in. So when the conflict happens and somebody says, well, well how's it going in y'all's relationship? Oh, it's good. Well, yeah, like, like what's he doing to pursue you? Oh, you know, I mean, just, it's good. That, that's not a real answer to that question, right? Or, or a conflict happens and you're the dodger. If you're a peace faker, you just kind of like conflict, oh, I'm just going to go this way, pretend like that didn't happen. Or, or you're, you're, the, you're the shutdowner, you're the power off. Like conflict happens and so you're peace faking, you just shut down and kind of just start kicking the dirt. He's yelling at you or she's yelling at you, just kind of shut down. Or you're, you're not the peace faker, you're the peace breaker. And so you're the litigator when it comes to conflict, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, no, no, see what happened? Hang on, let me get a chart out real quick. I'm going to lay out the facts. I've been taking notes on all this argument. So you start arguing your way out of this situation. And let's just be honest, if you're the litigator and the peace breaker, you're good at this. And you're like, you know, you, you would, someone asks ask you, are you always right? You're like, yeah, yeah, I am. And you think it's a good thing that you're winning all the arguments, but you're losing all your relationships? You're peace breaking, or you're the yeller. You just come from a loud family, loud people, that's my people, you know. And so anytime there's sort of some sort of argument, no, the Cowboys are going to win. No, the Chiefs are going to win. No, the Cow you know, you start yelling, and it's a civil argument, but like, why is everybody yelling? Loud noises, right? And so you don't know what's going on, and then you get with somebody that's a little bit more reclusive in nature. You start yelling, and they just begin to shut down, and you're breaking peace in that moment, and you're like, don't listen to the sound of my voice. Listen to the content of my words. I can't hear right? <laughs> and so we tend to kind of fall into one of these two categories, but Jesus and James, they would say there's a third category. And if you're a Christ follower, they would call you not to be a peace faker, not to be a peace breaker, but to be a peace maker. That Matthew 5, 9 says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James 3, 18, we saw this last week. So Jesus and his little brother James are one, two in us tonight. James says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That Jesus, he says, back over to Matthew 5, he says this profound truth. Therefore, if any of you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Notice he says, not that you got something against them. You realize somebody's mad at you. He says this, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. That what Jesus is saying here is that, that I would rather have your peace than your praise. That I'd rather have your obedience than your sacrifice. That if you're going to be right with me, you've got to be right with others. And some of you need to hear the word of Jesus tonight, 
that says, I don't care about your song. I care about your submissiveness to my word. And you need to first go be reconciled. So you may be like, "Uh uh-oh, there's somebody popping your mind. You're like, dang, I need to go to the bathroom real quick. And then you just leave, you hop on Highway 50, go home and apologize to your mama, apologize to your roommate, shoot a text right now, hey, we need to have a conversation. I need to make some things right. I've got a part to own. God is changing my perspective tonight. I don't want to be a peace faker. I don't want to be a peace breaker. I want to be a peacemaker, and I want to honor God. Because when we honor people and we reconcile people, what we are saying to the world is that we know God. But James and Jesus are saying, you, you cannot love a God that you can't see if you cannot love your neighbor who you can see. That Jesus is saying and James is saying that you can't love God who you cannot see if you are not able to love your neighbor who you can see. And so God is calling us tonight, James and Jesus are calling us tonight to be peacemakers. But how do we? How do we do this practically? Because some of you grew up in a home like me where conflict was just not handled well. Like I remember one of the worst fights my parents had was over a tarp, a blue tarp. I'm like, y'all are, y'all are cussing each other down to the bone over a tarp. Can we just take a step back from the situation? And so you grew up in this dysfunction, much like me. So when it comes to handling conflict and being a peacemaker, you're like, bro, how do you do that? With well, a classic text to handle our conflict and handle our uh, unreconcilable relationships is found in Matthew 18. And if you're going to have a change of perspective tonight, you're going to have to change your paradigm. Your paradigm is a change of thinking that leads to a change of acting. And so you've got to change some things. And we see here in Matthew 18, here's what it says, starting in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, If your brother sins against you. So when it comes to conflict, man, let me just tell you, first thing, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff. About 95% of our conflict, we should just let roll off our back. Proverbs 19.11 says this, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression that we need to learn how to not be so easily offended. If someone flips you off on the road, just let it roll off your back. If someone looks at you wrong in class or at the office, let it roll off your back. If someone slights you in just a subtle way, let it roll off your back. 95% of things. 4% of things, if if you're really dealing with it, roll it on to the Lord. 4% of things, roll it on to the Lord. And then 1% of things... You're going to need to go and work it out. That's why Jesus says here in Matthew 18 that if your brother has sinned against you, go to him and work it out. Now, the way you determine if it falls in that 1% is to ask a couple of questions. Is the offense seriously dishonoring to God? Has it permanently damaged our relationship? Or is it seriously hurting other people or the offender? The way you determine the 1% is you ask these questions. Is the offense seriously dishonoring to God? Is it a sin? And is it a sin against you? Has it damaged this relationship? And is it seriously hurting other people or even the offender himself? You have to determine, is it a sin? Is it against you? And if it is, go and work it out. So Jesus, he goes on and he says this, once you determine if it's a sin against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
This Greek word, it implies that you go to him and you lay out the evidence. Okay, you go to him and you lay out the evidence. So if you're going to resolve conflict biblically, you don't sweat the small stuff. Point number two underneath this subsection, you don't spread the big stuff. You've got to go to them. Now, so often, instead of going, man, don't we choose other paths? James is saying that there's a worldly way to handle conflict and there's a godly way to handle conflict. And if you choose to be a friend with the world, you are an enemy with God. And so the worldly way of handling conflict, instead of going to that person, you gossip. Gossip is so easy, it's so attractive. And you have a conflict that breaks out between you and somebody else, but then you go tell somebody else about the conflict, thinking that telling somebody else is going to resolve the conflict instead of going to that person and working it out. And so you, you gossip. And so when it comes to gossip, man, I, I live by the 24-hour rule. If somebody comes to me and they have gossiped to me, hey, did you hear about this, what this person did this weekend or what happened in my group? I say, oh, oh hey, time out. Hey, so on the real, this is going to be a little bit of offense, offensive, but, but let me just tell you, this is kind of how I roll. Um, you've got 24 hours to go tell that person, or I'll tell them. <laughs> whoa, whoa, what? I'm like, yeah, man, on the real, you got 24 hours to go tell them, man, because telling me ain't going to help nothing. You need to go tell them yourself. Well, man, I ain't got time. No, you had time to come tell me. You got time. Well, my phone's broke. We'll borrow my phone. You got 24 hours. And check this out, paradigm. Check this out, body of Christ. Imagine if this was our culture. Imagine instead of, instead of taking in gossip and, and, and rolling around and all the drama and this is what he said, what she said. Imagine if we had a culture where it became really unsafe to gossip. And you try to gossip with somebody here after the service tonight and say, hey, 24-hour rule, you need to go tell them. <clears throat> All right, next person. Hey, 24-hour rule, like, are y'all robots? What's going on here? Can I not gossip somewhere? And imagine if this was the air that we breathed, if we responded to gossip this way. And guys, we will not tolerate gossip because the way we respond to gossip will determine the unity of our ministry and of our impact so things we do instead of going, we gossip or we wallow in it, right? Girls, you're really good at this. No offense. You run the scenario back in your mind. You, you overthink it a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Don't, I mean, I know. Come on. And you're like, oh, wait. And then uh, I remember the facial expression. And then there was that smell there, like vivid things like that, you know. And so, and I think he meant this. Or I think she meant this. And oh, my gosh, I think that means this about me. And I, and I think, oh, my mother was involved, I think, you know. And you start just kind of fantasizing this negative future. And so you get, so you get depressed or you, get, you start keying their car or something weird like that because you're just wallowing in it, right? Instead of just going to the person, or, or we, just, we just deny it. This is me, guys. This is you too, probably. Oh, you know, no big deal. It didn't happen. I mean, I know, I know he said this about my wife and about my mama and my daddy and, my, you know, I mean, my kids, you know, but it, I mean, he didn't mean it. You know, he, you know, it's no big deal. No, no, that's an offense. Or we try to get even, right, guys? I'm just going to wait for my time. You cut me, I'll cut you back. You mess with me, I'll get you. And we get even, and we think that this is the way, but Jesus is saying there's a better way. Conflict can be a gift if you would just go. And when you go, you go like Jesus came to this earth, John 1, 14, full of grace and full of truth. And then you go and you're specific. You lay out the evidence. And Jesus says, and going on in, in, the, in the next verse, he's in 15, he says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. 
We go to them and we work it out because we could have been wrong or they, they could have not intended this. And Jesus says, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. Peter would say that love, it covers a multitude of sin in 1 Peter 4, 8. But Jesus, I love that Jesus isn't just this romantic guru that everything's going to end well and everything's going to end happy. He goes on in verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That you don't need to sweat the small stuff. You don't need to spread the big stuff. And you don't need to stop if you're stiffed. That you keep going, you keep reconciling. Because God didn't stop when we first rejected him. And so we go and we reconcile. And so if, if you've gone to them in private and it hasn't worked, man, expand your circle. What I mean by that is, is Jesus says here that you invite people into the conflict that you trust. Mediators, you expand your circle. You take one or two people, you go back to them. And then if that didn't work, you expand your circle even more. You bring in the pastors, you bring in the church. And if that doesn't work, what he says is that you treat them like a heathen or a tax collector. That doesn't mean you shun them. That means that you love them. And you don't blame them for acting like a blind man. You love them and then you forgive them. And forgiveness is so hard, especially if you've been so wronged. But forgiveness, it's a way to suffer. And when you're forgiving, you're saying, I'm going to choose to embody Christ to this person. I'm going to suffer the injustice in this situation. There was a gross offense that took place, a church that was shot at and shot up couple of years ago in Charleston, South Carolina. And it's always interesting to see how the people of Christ respond in conflict. In a gross catastrophe, a crisis that was hate-filled, a gunman came in and he slaughtered innocent people. Nadine Collier, a daughter of Ethel Lance, she said at the hearing where this man, this murder was standing before her, and her voice was breaking up with emotion. She said, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I'll never talk to her again. I will never, ever hold her again, but I forgive you. And I have mercy on your soul that we've got to forgive We've got to change our perspective. If we're going to see conflict as a gift, we've got to part to own a perspective to change. And finally, thirdly, you've got a path to follow. You've got a path to follow. Verse 6, James says this. I love this. You can circle this. You can put arrows at this. This is awesome. But he gives more grace, not less grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That James is saying, if you're going to be able to navigate conflict in your life, man, you're going to need the grace of God. But in order to give the grace of God in the midst of conflict, you're going to need to receive the grace of God because you can't give what you don't have. And so many of us have come in here tonight, listen, you think that you're too bad for the grace of God to save you. You've done too, too many sinful things, but let me just tell you and let me speak an anthem of beauty over your sweet soul tonight that the truth of God has not changed and has been redeeming men for all uh, thousands of years. And Paul, one of the greatest terrorists against the church, he got flipped, turned upside down like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and he wrote in Romans 5.20 that when sin abounds, oh glory, grace abounds all the more. 
that if your grace was in a race with your sin, grace would have crossed the finish line for the win. It would have gotten into the locker room, taken a bath. I don't know that grace needs one, but it took a bath. Got something to eat. Fielded a couple of interviews. Watched Sports Center as your sin was crossing the finish line. It ain't a close race. Check this out. Grace, it has this beautiful ability to scream out this glorious, great truth that grace's glorious volume drowns out the whispering power of sin. That if you have a grace problem in conflict, what is true of you is that you have a gospel problem. That if you have a hard time giving grace, it's because you have not received grace infinitely. And so James is saying in order for you to have conflict and have it biblically and be a peacemaker, not a peace faker, not a peace breaker, you're going to need the grace of God in the midst of your conflict. But how do you get the grace? James, he says this, that you get the grace from humility, that humility is required in order for us to receive grace, that the way that we humble ourselves is, is that we put others above us, that humility requires us to die to ourselves, but when we die to ourselves, we resurrect the community. That grace is something we need, and James is telling us the way to walk in humility practically and handle conflict biblically. He says that you've got to get this grace through humility, and he goes on and he tells us in verse 7, you've got to submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. I love Justin's story because he said, man, so much of my life was submitted to God, but there was this little part of me, I was trying to white-knuckle it, and God wants us to submit in totality. But it's so hard for us to submit our conflict because we want to be right and we want justice. But we have to submit willfully our conflict before God because conflict, if it's not submitted to God, man, it will cause many sins and will seek revenge but James is saying, submit your life to God. Submit your conflict to God. Don't seek vengeance. That when you forgive, you give up the right to exact revenge upon somebody. And you trust God. And you trust what Peter said about God. That God is a good judge. And he will judge justly. That you don't buy into the lie of Satan. That you need to go seek revenge and become a peace faker or a peace breaker. But you trust God that you don't want to be a payback person. You want to be a peacemaking person. And you trust the truth of God that there, though there may have been some justice, I mean some injustice in your situation, but that justice delayed is not justice denied, that God's got your back, that he will create vengeance. He will make all wrongs right. And we have to trust God with our conflict. James, he goes on in verse 8, I love this, he says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. That James is saying, man, if you want to see uh, conflict as a gift, you're going to have to repent. That the path to grace to handle conflicts as a gift is going to involve repentance. That James is saying, anytime we turn to God, we've got to turn away from sin. To draw near to God means you draw away from sin. To come near to God, you, you go away from sin. Or to say it like this, nearness to God always leads to distance from your sin. And notice that repentance involves in this, this short little passage both your hands and your heart, your actions and your attitude, your behavior and your belief, that nearness to God always leads to distance from sin. And then he goes on in verse 9 and he says something kind of radical, something kind of weird and strange here. He says in verse 9 that you've got to lament and mourn 
and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He says to mourn because conflict resolution flows from our brokenness over our own sin first and our brokenness over the sin of others. I had the chance to meet with four young adults this past Sunday, and I just got to hear their story. And one of the young ladies, she, she, she surrendered her life to Jesus. It was so awesome. But as we went around, I shared my story with them as well. We just said, you know, what's one word to describe your life? And, and the unanimous word was we're broken. So James, he's saying that, that you've got to be broken. You've got to lament and mourn over your sin. I mean, can't you see the brokenness within your life? Just like Winston was talking about pursuing all the things that you think will make you happy, but realizing there's not life there. You're looking for life among the dead. And we've got to be broken over our sin. But, but also, can't you see the brokenness that's all around us? We need brokenness. Are you broken? Christians of old, they used to pray for tears, that God would give them brokenness. And so many times we cry over things that don't even matter, and God forgive us for crying more over Nicholas Sparks or, or a dog's purpose rather than the brokenness within inside of us and the brokenness around us. God forgive us for being more moved at a Chiefs game, at a Royals game, than over the slaughter of 4% of a town in Sutherland Springs. That we look at this man and say, how could he? How could he do that? All the while dismissing the same sin that is inside of us that may not lead us to shoot up a church, but it may lead us to have a life that has a wake of casualties in our story. Jesus says, if you hate, you've murdered. So we need to follow the path. We need to be Christians who are both sad yet yet happy. That's this paradox in Christianity that we, that we live a life where we weep over our sin while singing in astounding joy over our salvation. And James, he finishes and he says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord in verse 10 and he will lift you up. I mean, imagine what your life would be like if you started handling your conflict this way. If you started owning your part, if you started changing your perspective and your paradigm, you started following the path that God has laid out before you, and you started seeing conflict as a gift, man, all healthy relationships are marked by conflict, and all unhealthy relationships are marked by unresolved conflict. The conflict it is inevitable, but when it's done God's way, it is beautiful. Conflict is a gift. It has the potential to gouge your life, but it's a gift. And the better version of you is on the other side of conflict. The way you respond to conflict just might save your life. When I was living in Louisiana, I met a coach, just a blue-collar guy. He was an old coach at Captain Shreve High School. Coach Abernathy was his name. And when I heard Coach Abernathy's story, I was, I was amazed he was just a, a football coach serving in this ministry that I was involved with at this school. And I found out that his wife had left him some years ago for another woman. And he had a conflict. Now, he chose to honor God with that conflict. He didn't throw her name in the mud. He didn't create some big war between him and his ex-wife. But he, he still loved her. 
And he did what the scripture said. Coach Abernathy had kidney disease and he needed a kidney transplant. And so he was well known in the community and and he started asking people and and no one was a perfect match. And finally, his wife, his ex-wife went in and she was a perfect match. And she went under the knife and gave him her kidney so that he could have life. The way that he responded to this conflict gave him life. And the way you and I respond to our conflict between God will give us life eternally or rob us life eternally. See, there's a conflict between you and God. And the conflict is critical But there's a gift. The conflict is sin, but there's a gift that Jesus has come and he's made a way. He paid the price so that you don't have to live in conflict with God. That the conflict is critical, but the gift is compelling. And the path in order for you to have reconciliation between you and God is clear. That Jesus came to be the way. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man is reconciled with God except through me. And the only way you'll ever have the resources to navigate your conflict properly is when you surrender your life to Jesus completely. Will your conflict gouge the relationships in your life? Or will your conflict be a gift that brings about intimacy in the relationships of your life? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Oh, God, we thank you so much that these aren't just some ideas that you've conjured up, but that you've demonstrated conflict resolution with us. And so, God, I pray if there's a man or a woman here tonight that doesn't know you, that they would see that that they're at odds with you, even though they didn't feel at odds with you when they came in here, but they would see their sin and they would see that they, they need you, God. And I pray that they would trust your path And they would be reconciled with you that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation and the old is gone and the new has come because you are the great reconciler of God and man. And God, I pray that once we are reconciled with you, we'd be able to be reconciled with one another, that we would own our part, that we would change our perspective, and we would walk your path so that conflict, successful conflict, would mark our relationships. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Man, that was challenging. All I got to say is, man, I was, I was hearing the word of God, and, and as Chad was preaching, I could only stop just to think about just the way that God has just reined me and, and, and just, you know, this passage intersected my life uh, soon after I, I committed my life to Christ my third year in college. And, uh, man, he said something that, that really stuck with me. The, the, the best version of you and I, the most healed, the most whole version of you and I stands on the other side of conflict. And what he meant by that is the way you handle conflict, if you do it the world's way or you do it God's way, will determine your wholeness, will determine how, how healed you are. And man, I grew up in a broken shattered, jacked up home. As I was making the transition from fifth to sixth grade, my parents got a divorce. 
and it shattered my world. Everything I knew just, just broke me to the core. And I became real bitter and angry at my mom and had a bunch of uh, just unforgiveness in my heart towards her. And one of the first things God, God called me to after I committed my life to Christ was he called me to go make that relationship right. And I remember having this conversation with God, and God's like, man, I don't have any part to own, God. Like, I, 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 she's the one that walked out. She's the one that filed. She's the one that did this. I just kept role-playing over and over, just the blame game, blame game. And what God taught me in that moment is he said, Josiah, even if it's a majority of her fault, let's say it's 95% her fault, and it's only 5% your fault. Your 5% is the way you responded, your anger, your tone, your body language, the words that maybe came out of your mouth at the time. Maybe that's 5%. He said, you own 100% of your 5%. And you go to her, not with the pretense that she's going to ask for forgiveness for what she did, but you go to her because of all the grace and all the mercy that I've extended to you what I've done to forgive you and you go and you humble yourself because humility always paves the way forward you humble yourself before me and your mom and you ask for forgiveness and that's what I did I went broken, shattered, busted, unforgiving hard hearted and I laid that down I said mom I have a part to own in all of this will you forgive me and in that moment, she broke down and cried. And we had one of those moments where she extended forgiveness on her end. I extended forgiveness on my end. And in that moment, our relationship was reconciled. And that is what God might be calling some of you to do tonight. Because the best, most whole, most healed version of you stands on the other side of conflict. The number one determining factor for your future success in marriage or your future success with your kids is your ability to resolve conflict. Trust me. Just ask my wife if we have conflict. We do. We do. But the reason why we're still running the race that God's called us to is because we try to walk this out to the best of our ability. We don't get it right all the time. There's knockdown dragouts. There's all kinds of things that, man, I wish I could take back. But we always pursue reconciliation and come under the humility that God has called us to. And that's what he's calling some of you tonight because this is what I know. Every time we open up God's word, it demands a response. What's your response?